Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 this morning will be part two of the parable commonly known as the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool. And I want to begin reading at verse 13 uh, through verse 34. And let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us this morning. Now, Father, we come to the preaching of your word, that holy ordinance that you have given to us, O Lord, ordained it to be that specific means of grace of bringing, Lord, your elect to salvation and even causing your elect to grow in grace. Now, Father, do bless the reading of it, bless the preaching and the explanation of it. May we, with faith and love, grasp its teaching. May we receive it with joy as that that manna from heaven. May it be sweet to us, O Lord. May we be glad to confess our sins and embrace this truth, this gospel truth, Lord, that it might fill us with those motivations, the strength that it would excite our faith, our love, and our hope. Lord, that we might glorify you in all of our deeds and works. And we pray this, O Lord, and we ask for your blessing upon us. In Christ's name, amen. Now, beloved, beginning at verse 13, hear the word of the living God. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And he said to him, man who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you. And then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat drink and be merry. And, but God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, for this reason, I say to you, don't worry about your life as to what you will eat nor for your body as to, as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow, sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, 
how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat or what you will drink and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows what you need knows that you need these things, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. And do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes in nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and you may be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Well, beloved, like I stated earlier, this parable is known as the rich fool, and we can understand why it has been designated with that title. God does recognize this rich landowner as a fool, but there is an uh, uh, there is an element that I want to address because I think it can be misleading, and that's the idea that this person in the parable is a fool because he's rich, and that's not the case. And we need to make note of that for ourselves. It's not because of his wealth that he is a fool, and we will see this as we go along. It's important for us to recognize that there are several things, and this is one of the reasons that I've chosen to spend an extra Lord's Day addressing this parable. One, because there seems to be a very mixed understanding when it comes to material things, goods, uh, wealth, riches, Christians seem to be confused sometimes about it. So there's a mixed understanding among God's people concerning those things. And we need to have a, a biblical understanding of them if we are going to sort of eliminate in our lives unnecessary frustration. Life's hard enough. We don't need to add to the challenges that uh, in this fallen world, we don't need to add to those frustrations because we're ignorant or we don't know what we need to know about the life that God has given to us. And then there's another reason that I wanted to address it, and that is the idea that even among uh, Christians and even among our reform circles, there's this idea that seems to crop up from time to time from some, some person to person idea. And that is somehow that poverty is a blessing. Poverty is a blessing. And I want to address that. I, I want to, I want to uh, deal with this uh, uh, pietism 
that we might find around us. That is, the less we have, the more pious, the more righteous we inherently are. That too is a myth and needs to be, well, it needs to be busted, it needs to be destroyed, and we need to have a proper understanding of what pious is, what it is to be pious and to be righteous in God's sight. So you have two extremes. You have uh, this idea that in this life, because I'm to be so heavenly minded and heavenly oriented that, well, I'm not really to be very active on earth. I, I don't really need to do anything. And that's an extreme view. God's going to take care of me. I'm sure we've heard these things. Maybe we've said these things. No matter what, God's going to take care of me. And we need to be careful when we say things like that, that we are using that rightly and in a biblical way. So there's this idea among Christians that I don't need to do anything. God's just going to drop manna from heaven like he did with Israel in the desert, and we're going to live satisfied. Um, And then there's this other extreme, that I have to do everything. That God's not even in the picture. Uh, We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We do everything. We, We are to be as aggressive and as... Um, busy as possible, and brothers and sisters, that too is not good. Those are two extremes, and we need to learn how to live in the middle of those two extremes. And so that was, again, the second reason why I chose to uh, at least spend some more time in this portion of Luke so that we might have some clarity brought to some of these things. Well, let me address... Let me address um, these two extremes. I want us to look at the parable, and I don't want to just launch into some far-out idea. I want us to see that where we are getting our concepts and our biblical understanding, we're getting it from the parable. We're getting it from God's Word. Now, this is the teaching of Jesus, meaning that Jesus was very familiar. He'd been very, been well rehearsed in the Old Testament. And there's nothing that Jesus teaches us that is contradictory to the teaching of the Old Testament. You can believe that. You can bank on that. There's no contradictions here. We don't get to the, you know, we say, well, the Old Testament is filled with material things, but the New Testament is about spiritual things. That's a false concept. That's not the way Christians ought to think. Spiritual things were all throughout the Old Testament, and God used material goods to prosperous people. We're going to look, we're going to, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. And then even in the New Testament, we can see how material goods were used in the New Testament to foster and promote and expand the gospel. I gave you one last week. Remember, let me show you. Just turn to the opening chapter of Luke. I'm going to give you one now. Look at verse 1. And we're going to read verse through 1, 2, and 3, and 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, 
just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Well, it is very reasonable and I think proper to take from that text that Theophilus was a person of means and that he had commissioned Luke to write out this account, to record these events as they were stated from these eyewitnesses and put them in consecutive order so that so that he would what? Now, this is a, a man of means. Now, notice what he says in verse 4, so that you may know the exact truth about these things. Now, this is a man investing in a library. Now, I'm not stretching the truth here. That phrase or the, the Greek word under that phrase, you have been taught, is the word katecheo that we get our word catechism from. Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, I'm going to draft for you the gospel of Luke and Acts so that you can rightly know and understand what? These Christian doctrines as they relate to Jesus Christ, his person and work, and what happened immediately after he ascended to the right hand of God, the book of Acts. And Luke takes him all the way up to the end of Paul's life. And so from, from the, very, the, the very concept, the very reality of the gospel of Luke comes to us by a commission of someone who had the money to pay for it to be done. Because it took effort and time. And invest, what did he call it? An investigation. Brothers and sisters, the parable in no way, in no way demonizes riches. It doesn't say riches are sinful, and nor does it glamorize poverty. If we look at verse 15, what Jesus does say is he gives this grave warning about how slippery and how deceptive our greed can be within us. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Why? Because greed can even lurk behind some of the things that we want that are even good. And that could be stimulated by the very question Jesus has asked. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Nothing wrong. There's nothing unlawful about that whatsoever. Nothing sinful about this request. Now, Jesus tells him that's not what he's there to do. He's not the arbitrator or the civil magistrate over that. And so he's going to have to go to the uh, appropriate authorities, is he not? But Jesus tells us, he warns us, and he says, listen, we must be on guard because greed takes many different forms. And because it takes many different forms, 
We should be educated about it. We should understand this sin, this lust, and we should know it. We should be able to identify it when we see it where? In us, in us. And he goes on and he adds to the warning there in verse 15, this, this I would say, um, this encouragement For he says, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It's not the the accumulation of goods that makes one's life anything of of substance or or, or holy or or good or righteous or anything in God's sight. There's, There's no material standing that we must obtain to be seen as 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 being favored by God. Okay, that's off the table. God loves rich and poor. God blesses rich and poor. God saves rich and poor. Now, each one has its challenges, and I'm not going to address those in this sermon. They, they certainly have challenges. The rich have challenges. The poor have challenges. But then he goes on and he says to this parable, he identifies, he says, there's the land of a rich man was very productive. Nothing sinful about that whatsoever. No sin here. There's no sin involved in a rich man who owns property. And number two, there's nothing sinful about it being very productive. And if you look at verse 17, there's even nothing sinful about what to do with all of the blessing that God has given to someone. He says, he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And it's, I mean, this is super abundance, super abundance. He's, the land by the, by this blessing of God, if you will, has produced so much harvest that he is out of space to contain it. And he asks a reasonable question. What am I going to do with it? I have to store it. I have to do, I have to perform certain methods of, of storing it so that it what? Doesn't ruin. And he says in verse 18, this is the conclusion that he came up with. He says, and this I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And this is, again, they can find many commentaries that take issue with that verse. But I, I want to at least present a perspective, not that there can't be an issue found there, but nevertheless, there's still nothing wrong with this business person trying to remedy this, the, the problem that he has. I've got way too much food or, or grain, and I have, I have very little storage space for it. Obviously, it was so much profit that he's able to tear down his barns and build new ones without it coming out of his base budget, without coming out of his normal budget. That's, I think that lends itself to the excess Jesus is talking about. Jesus said this man was abundantly blessed, beyond, wild imagination blessed. So where does it begin to fail? And as we talked about last week, and I, I want to avoid the temptation of re-preaching that sermon because that's easy to do. Uh, I, I do want to give you new perspectives in this sermon to help you with last week's sermon. 
not in neglect of it or in replace of it, but in a addendum to it, if you will. So notice what he says. This is where I think he begins to, to falter. This is where he begins to fail because he does here, it seems like this blessing, this, this challenge, the, the blessing has given him a challenge. And this is where his heart is exposed. Okay. This is where he fails, where he says right there in verse 19, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, this is where I believe that God, when God addresses him as a fool, this is where I believe God is addressing him because no, you know, what does Paul say in Corinthians? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for what? To the glory of God. So even these common things, and he is using these common things as he's planning his future, and I'm going to address that in a minute too. He's planning his future, and he does so with this attitude of self-gratification. I believe that's his failure. He's, God's not in the picture. He, he doesn't plan to, there's no worship planned. Obviously, when there's great blessings come into our life, we should not pull away from worship. We should worship even more. We should worship even more fervently. Why? Because God's showing such favor to us that we are saying, thank you, O Lord. Certainly, we're undeserving of all of these things. I mean, we have the baseline necessities met in our life. And out of all of that, when he, when he blesses the works and labors of our hands, he blesses our, our skill sets, our intellectual skills, and all of these creativities that he's given us. And he blesses those that go over and beyond anything that we can imagine, what's our response? It should be, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Plain and simple. He does not do this. He fails at giving God thanks. And all he's thinking about is a life of ease. Now, before I go any further, let me address this idea, or at least clear it up in your mind on wealth and abundance. I mean, God is a giving God. Now, God's a giver. And we see this all throughout Scripture, and we see it in the opening chapters of Scripture. When God created the heavens and the earth, and he created in particular a paradise, a garden to set Adam and Eve into. What a blessing that was. From the very beginning, God not only set Adam in a pretty nice place, he set him in a very good place. And remember what God said as he... Um, as, as he made a covenant with Adam, all of the trees of the garden are there for you to eat from, but one. That's abundance. You could say Adam was wealthy based upon God's blessing and favor to him. Number one, he had a face-to-face a, a -face relationship with God. That's, that's rich. 
That's why Paul calls every Christian rich in Christ in Ephesians. He had an abundance of food. He had a place he lived in called paradise. He had a beautiful wife. Well, he thought she was beautiful. He quotes poetry to her the moment he sees her. So he's loving life. Now, brothers, I'm not, sisters, I'm not making small of this matter. This is a bit, God was over an abundance given to Adam more than he could possibly need. But he was wealthy and he had no money. Wealth is not just in the accumulation of money or even material goods. Wealth is accumulated in relationships, primarily first with God. And then having the resources that God gives to you in relationship to you being able to use them according to the gifts and the talents that he's given you so that he might bless you personally and your family and that you might be rewarded through even all of that grace. But we can move from there and we can move to Noah. I know there's the storybooks and the children's storybooks and whatnot that Noah was out there. <coughs> Give me some pitch, boy. I built this big boat. That's not how it worked. The boat was way beyond Noah to build himself. And remember, he was also a preacher. It, it would, it's very reasonable that what? Noah was a man of means and he had commissioned construction workers to come out and to aid him in building this ark, which would have been condemning. Why? As they're working on the ark, Noah's preaching the gospel to them. That takes money. So there's two pictures. Then you could take Abraham. I mean, take Abraham. He was a prince of Ur. And he left Ur at the calling and at the, at the gospel call of Christ in his life. He went out from his countrymen, taking with him a host of wealth and servants and money. Why? Because they all lived in tents. Somebody, Abraham didn't set those up every time they had to camp out. Remember, Abraham was 75 years old. Servants did that for him. People that he had hired in his household that worked for him, they did those things. And remember, his nephew was with him too. And he had a bunch of livestock. Brothers and sisters, we could go down the the biblical timeline and, and, and fill it up with people that God had blessed with possessions. And they're not sinful. The riches, it was not the problem of the rich man here. It wasn't his riches. It was his heart. His heart was alienated from God. And, and, And listen, so you have this idea, you can go through all of these. Listen, I don't want to leave, there's a person I don't want to leave out of the New Testament. Lydia. Lydia was a businesswoman. 
She was what Paul says, a seller of purple. And she also had servants in her household. She was a merchant. And she also funded the church at Philippi. She helped financially support Paul's work at Philippi. Why? Because, well, missionaries need to be funded. Churches need to be funded. And the gospel has to be financed. And she was gladly, through her conversion and her her newfound love for God and being birthed in the kingdom of God, being made a child of God, she was more than happy and glad to what? Fund the church there in Paul's ministry in Philippi to see others come to know Jesus. So it's not a problem with wealth. Wealth has been used throughout the history of the world to finance the kingdom of God and to see it grow and to see it flourish and and just expand from continent to continent, country to country, family to family. Now, there's another thing that I want to address. It's not the problem with wealth, not the problem with riches. And, and there's not a problem, there's no problem with saving. We, I know Christians read this, and I've had many Christians ask me, well, was well, it sinful to save up money? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The problem is not that he stored up the goods. If this man sinned by storing up his grain, that initial storage, if he sinned by storing up the grain, then did Joseph sin in Egypt? I I mean, we can't blame Joseph, though, because he had a dream to do it, didn't he? Who gave him the dream? God did. What did What did God tell Joseph? I'm going, there's going to be seven strong, productive years, and there's going to be seven lean years. So what did Joseph do during these very productive years, these rich years? What did he do? He built storehouses, and he stored up grain and to do what? To get them through the seven lean years. He had so much produce that other surrounding nations were coming Joseph's brothers, were coming to Egypt to buy food. Was that sinful? Absolutely not. The storage of the grain is not sinful. Uh, Look at 2 Corinthians. Time is really clicking along here, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 12. I'm not going to find 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 14. Here for this third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you. Now notice what Paul says. I'm going to come to you, but I'm not going to burden you. I'm not going to burden you financially with my visit. For I do not seek what is yours, but you... For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So what does Paul here acknowledge? That it's a very right thing and a very good thing for parents to save money. Now let me say this. 
There's a difference in saving and hoarding. Those, those words mean, they don't mean the same thing, right? There's a, there's a negative connotation to the word hoarding. The, the word has a selfish connotation to it, that there is the hoarding of something for selfish purposes and reasons. Now, look. Is it sinful to be rich? No. Can it be sinful to be rich? Yes. How so, pastor? When you, when you choose sinful means to get rich, riches become a curse. Is poverty sinful? Not necessarily, no. How does, how does poverty become sinful when one thinks that's their standing before God, that their poverty makes them rich in God's sight, that is sinful. That's why we don't take vows of poverty. You may very well need to be poor. How, pastor? If you are required to sin to keep your wealth, if you are required to lie, cheat, and steal, murder maybe, to keep your possessions, what should you do? Become poor in this world and rich toward God. Richer toward God because you're already rich in God's sight. So God's providence is the key here, isn't it? God providentially lays out our lives. He superintends it, if you will. And nothing in this parable, there's nothing wrong with the, the setting of the parable, but there's everything wrong with his heart. What did he do? What did he fail to do? He failed to value his soul more than his possessions. And that's what the text says. You fool, this very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared. So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. He valued this world's goods higher and greater than he valued possessing the things of God and God where those things as a blessing would have led him to greater worship, greater participation in the kingdom of God, able to do more than he ever has done for the kingdom of God and be rich in the Lord, exercise wisdom, discernment, all of those things that come with it, the gifts of God. He was poor in the things of God and rich in the world's sight. And he lost his own soul for it. And we have to be careful of that ourselves. I know it's important. There's, there's an impression appearances make. The clothes we wear, the way we look, the cars we drive, the, the houses we live in, whatever the case may be, there's impressions given. But God says those impressions don't mean anything to me. 
that your life is not the sum and substance of those possessions. Your life to me is what is in you, who you are. That's what I'm looking for, God says. I think the the picking of David among his brothers to be the next king of Israel is a perfect picture of that, right? Because remember, uh, Samuel goes to anoint the new king of Israel and he starts with the most impressive brother. And God goes, that's not him. And you can imagine Samuel walks right up to him and goes, You're, no, not him, no, not you. And he works his way down to this little, little runt of a boy named David. That's my boy. That's my man right there. That's the one. And what does God say? I'm not impressed with appearances. Remember what he told Moses in, as they're wandering of Israel, uh, before entering into Israel? I didn't choose Israel because they were strong and mighty. I chose actually the opposite. They were weak and pitiful. And I made them my people so that I might demonstrate my strength through them. Now, this sets up the next part that I think should clearly lay itself out before us since we've laid down some of these rules. In verse 22, Jesus wants to continue this teaching. Notice what he says in verse 22. For this reason, Jesus says, for this reason, what Jesus is doing is he's connecting these, the parable, and it's the truth of the parable. That is, a man is considered a fool not by whether he's rich, but whether he values his own soul. To be rich toward God is what he needs to be. Uh, let me give you a little commentary. There's a book called the Westminster Annotations. And um, uh, you can find it online. It's hard to, to read. It's typically in Old English. But the annotations were a commentary that the Westminster divines put together in those six years of meetings. And they wrote notes on every verse of the Bible. And what they say in this text is, in this natural law, this, in the natural world, it's easy Riches are easy to come by. What, what does Proverbs tell us about natural law? A man or woman that gets up early, does their job, works hard, on time. Now, I'm adding a little bit to it, right? But it's what it says, right? To be on time, be courteous, be respectful, do your job, mind your own business, show up the next day, do it again and again and again and again. Guess what's happened? Guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to go up to corporate life. You're going to be blessed, you're going to do well. That's how we need to teach and train our children, don't we? That these are natural things we ought to excel at and be good at. And these are the things you ought to, you ought to do naturally. But even more so as a Christian. So that's what they say about the text, okay? But when you're rich in those things, apart from God, you're poor. You're not wealthy at all in God's sight. But now he's going to add to this because Jesus knows that many of the people listening to him are not wealthy. And he doesn't want them going, 
That's right, Lord. These rich people need to be warned. So Jesus has a word for them. Notice what he says. He says, for this reason, I tell you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor your body as to what you will put on. Now, this is what the, the commoner struggles with. Daily worry. The daily worry and anxiety of what we call life. And of course, it's here, it, it's encapsulated in, in food and, and clothing, but there are other things that we uh, tend to worry about as well. And notice what Jesus says. He gives a similar promise. He says, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Now, this is an important truth to the principle that Jesus is about to lay out to us for, for those of us who struggle with worry and anxiety. Life is more than food. That is, God sees your life as more valuable than food and clothing to him. And then he says in verse 24 and in verse 27, now there's a command to do what? First, consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. It's not just any birds. Obviously, this is an argument of value from one being of greater value than the other. But, but uh, you can't miss this part where Jesus commands us to think. Consider. This is the same word used in the book of Hebrews where we are commanded when we are struggling and, and possibly entertaining the idea of leaving the faith and we're told to consider Jesus and our apostle and high priest. Think on these things. Ponder these things. Evaluate his work, his ministry, his person. Here, Jesus uses the same word, and he says, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to think about the ravens. The Hebrew mind would have immediately thought, that's a nasty bird, and they are nasty. They are disgusting. In fact, when I was turning on the interstate this morning, there was two of them picking the roadkill on the road. What? That's, that's, that's like their life, right? There's dirty, nasty birds. But that's the point that Jesus is making. In fact, the Old Testament said these birds were unclean. You can't eat them. They're nasty. They're unclean and they're off limits for you. I don't want you eating them. The point Jesus is making, now why didn't he say dove? That elegant bird, right? That elegant bird, you're like the elegant bird. Now, what Jesus is saying, he's not saying you're like the raven. He's saying, if Jesus is concerned about this dirty, nasty, disgusting bird, and he feeds it, how much more you? Now, let that sink in. If Jesus cares about that disgusting bird, how much more does he care about you? Think on it, folks. Why? Because so much of anxiety and worry is here. 
And I'm, is that, Pastor, are you saying it's in my head? I'm saying when you worry and anxiety over things you can do nothing about, you are wasting strength and energy instead of doing the things you can do something about. Okay? So consider the ravens. In verse 25, he just said what I just said. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your lifespan? And yet so many people live in fear or phobia of something happening to them. They never leave their house. So they never do anything for the kingdom of God. They never do anything for others. They never do anything to exercise the talents and the gifts and the, all of the creativity that God's given to them that they possess, that they own, that's theirs, then we'd be rewarded by God if they did these things, and yet they just sit at home with the fear of losing their life, and they have lost their life, actually. They've wasted it. That's one thing laziness does. Laziness is a waste of the creativity, the strengths, the blessings, and all the things that God has given to one. Look at verse 27, consider the lily. So we see this in verse 24, consider these ravens, they're dirty creatures and God cares for them. But look at verse 27, we have flowers here, lilies. It's a beautiful flower. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. Now Jesus says something interesting here. He says, listen, this lily is more impressive, if you think about it, than Solomon. Why? Solomon had people make his clothes. Solomon financed it. Solomon did all of these things on his part to look like a king, and yet the, what did the lily do? It just did what lilies do. They just, they just grow. And they thrive and they flourish, but there's something here that's important. The, the point that Jesus is making about the lily is that it's temporal, and yet God still cares for it. You know how we want to say, you know, we're like things that are strong, beautiful, you know, long-lasting. These are things. What he's saying is, look, even the lilies of the field, God addresses them, and they only live a short period of time, but I care for them. They're temporal. How much more you? We have something nasty and disgusting, and we have something so temporal. Here today, gone tomorrow. I mean, it's beautiful when it blooms, but they don't last. And then they're cut down and they're thrown into the fire. Not you. He says, but if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive, verse 28, alive today and tomorrow thrown into the first, how much more will he clothe you? You've meant a little faith. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying. Now, he's not saying don't go to work to earn money to buy food. Hey, he's not even saying don't keep your leftovers. You like leftovers? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. It depends on what it is, right? But even the 5,000 that Jesus fed, there was leftover fish and bread. What did he say? Pick it up and we'll keep it. Here Jesus is storing leftovers 
for a meal. So he's not saying, I mean, look, you know the, you know the old joke, I'm just going to wait on this roof, the flood waters are rising, God's going to deliver me in a boat and helicopter and everybody comes by to try to pick this old fellow up, but he just won't get in there. And when he gets to heaven, what does he say? I was just waiting on you, Lord, to deliver me. He goes, I, hey, I sent you a boat, a helicopter, and a ton of different ways of you escaping, but you didn't take them. And that's how, this, that's how so many Christians are. I'm just going to wait for God to take care of me and we don't use the means given to us and ask for God's blessing. You know what? You get up in the morning and say, oh, Lord, bless the work of these hands. Bless my relationships this day. I mean, people that may, be, may not even like you, Lord, give me favor with this man or with this woman to do your work. Bless my mind, my creativity, my thought process this day. Yes, I can think on my own. I know what two plus two is. But how much sweeter and rewarding is the blessing when I know that God gave me the rational ability to do it? Brothers and sisters, Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 112. I may have to spend another Lord's Day on this. You can let me know if that's needed. Brothers, I don't want you to be afraid of riches. I don't want you to pursue riches instead of pursuing God. You can't do that. You will fail mightily you lose your soul what I want you to do is see this world as your father's world and he uses all of these things to richly bless you any way he sees fit and you're to use that in stewardship it's yours to use in stewardship to his glory and for your reward look at Psalm 112 let's read that together praise the Lord sorry closing scripture praise the Lord how blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light rises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. That is, God will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. Why? Because the wicked hoard up material goods. He will gnash his teeth and melt away and the desire of the wicked will perish. Beloved, listen to me. If the Lord has blessed you, praise him. Serve him. If the Lord is blessing you, prepare to praise him and serve him even more. If you're at the very beginning of this thing and you're trying to figure it out, listen to me. Don't fall into these extremes that I've mentioned earlier. Understand that Riches aren't the problem, but it does, prevent, it does present challenges. The challenge for the rich is forgetting God. 
the challenge of the the poor have is blaspheming God. Why did you make me like this? Let's pray. Father, there's been so much said this morning. I pray that we would be able to digest it. Give us the ability to think through it, Lord, and consider what we have heard, consider the ravens, consider the lilies. Lord, forgive us where we have at any point, in any time we have, Lord, cursed you and blamed you for, Lord, something we don't have or something that we are struggling with or that we are facing that's a hardship. Lord, forgive us where we've not taken and used our wealth in a godly manner as we have read here in Psalm 112. Lord, may we learn to store things up as they might be needed and necessary, Lord, particularly in days that are challenging. May we consider how we might finance and foster and, Lord, help God's people through those difficult times. Help us to be rich in the things of God. And Lord, if it means blaspheming your name, if it means denying you, if it means, Lord, denying scripture, if it, if it means, Lord, that we must not be Christians in order to obtain our wealth and let us be poor in, in this world and rich toward you. For there is nothing worse, Lord, than having abundance along with an empty soul that can never be filled or satisfied. Oh, Father, work in us a peace that surpasses understanding. Work in us the grace, the saving grace given to us in Christ, Lord, that we might be satisfied with you and you alone. Lord, that all these other things are just blessings. You are the treasure and the substance, Lord, of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.